Our theme this morning is the joy of sacrifice, and the main lesson is taken from an incident in the life of our Lord, which is recorded in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. Let me read these words. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. We are all now getting ready for Christmas. And around most of our households, we are beginning to wonder what we should buy certain people. It's hard really to imagine for me some people who do not need another tie or another pair of socks or some items, but there really are people who seem to have everything. And it's a puzzle as to what to get them, especially in affluent America. I clipped out of one magazine a list of gifts that were being offered in some of the great stores of the country. To stir the jaded appetite and imagination, some stores in the United States are offering such gifts as these. Neiman Marcus, for instance, in Dallas, has in it a music, uh, has in it music which is being played throughout the store, Come Fly Away With Me and My Beautiful Balloon. And they are selling his and her balloons, inflatable, with propane gas, and airily priced at $6,850. Sachs at Fifth Avenue in New York City has offered a lifetime supply of Mark II cologne for him and uh, has dispensed it in a ref is dispensing it in a refillable 14-karat gold uh, flagon. The price tag is only $2,500. For the golf player who seems to have everything, one store has listed a 14-carat gold-headed putter for a sporting $199. A Los Angeles store came up with a pill box made out of gold with a built-in alarm to signal the owner when it was time for his tranquilizer. The price is $750. Other stores have wall-to-wall mink carpeting for $600 a square yard. A bronze temple gong considered ideal for summoning the children to supper for a mere $500. And an electric waste paper basket for $89.95, which silently chews up memos, report cards, and post-Christmas bills. <laughs> now, what do you do in a country like this when you talk about giving and you think about it? Actually, uh, psychiatrists have a field day in looking for the hidden meaning in gifts. And I have read a book by the brilliant Swiss psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Tournier, called The Meaning of Gifts. And in it, he recounts experiences that have come to him through his practice as a psychiatrist with gifts made to his patients. Here is a woman, for instance, who comes to him complaining that her husband had just bought her a very expensive gift. Well, says Dr. Tournier, what's wrong with that? Only one thing, she said, this must mean that he's running around with another woman. 
and he feels guilty, so he's bringing me gifts. There are hidden meanings to gifts. Uh, there is also a case history reported here of one man who wanted very much to be a railroad engineer. His father wouldn't hear of it and made him be a banker. Uh, he is in Switzerland. And uh, this man, when his son was finally he had a son born to his family, and when this little boy was three years old, he went to a very elaborate department store and bought the most expensive electric train to give to his little boy for Christmas. While all the time he wanted to run the electric train, the little boy was more interested in looking at the wrappers and shaking the box, and his father would scold him when he could not understand uh, some of the things that were being done with this beautiful electric train. Dr. Ternier goes on to show how that throughout history, gifts have made a, a very interesting study for psychologists. Uh, one of the things that he points out is that the, uh, the Greeks had a very difficult time in overcoming the city of Troy. You remember they battled away for 10 years, and Ulysses came up with a brilliant idea that they would construct an enormous wooden horse and that they would conceal troops inside the horse and that they would roll it outside the gates of the city of Troy and announce that this was a gift to the god, goddess of the city of Troy and uh, then get in their boats and go back out to sea. Well, inside the city wall, uh, the Trojans had a big discussion about whether or not they should admit this strange, gigantic wooden horse left outside their gates. They had a very brilliant, wise old priest who kept saying to them, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. There's some trick to this. But they didn't listen, and they felt that they ought to admit this big wooden horse, and so they did. And of course, once the horse was inside the gates and night came, the soldiers came out and conquered the city. And so people are sometimes suspicious of people who bring gifts uh, to us. Now then, what about our gifts to God? Are we making any gifts to God? This is Budget Sunday in our church. And at the congregational meeting, which will follow this service, the members of the Board of Deacons will present to the congregation the budget for 1971 of the Montreat Presbyterian Church and seek the support of the congregation in raising this budget. Now then, the budget is raised or should be raised by people who are interested in the work of God, who want to make a gift to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is always watching, always watching gifts that we bring. He, too, is interested in our gifts. And it says here in this passage in Mark that Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, how the people cast in money. He was more interested in how they gave than in how much they gave. His disciples, if you read the context of this passage of Scripture, had been enormously impressed with the great buildings. They were country bumpkins from Galilee, and here they were in the temple precincts, the temple which had taken so many years to build, and they were admiring its great beauty. And Jesus was not even impressed with the beauty of this great temple. And then they went inside 
And there, there were 13 trumpet-shaped coffers made out of brass. If you can imagine taking a trumpet and putting the muzzle of the trumpet down and the narrow part up, this is the way these big, these big chests were made. And there were 13 of them there in the temple precinct. And on each one of them would be inscribed what the money put into that particular chest would be used for. You could designate your gift. If you wanted to give it to, to buy something for the altar, you could put it there. If you wanted it to, to go for the priest, you could put it there. If you wanted it to go for poor people, you could put it there. And so Jesus watched the people bringing their gifts and placing them in these huge coffers. And those who came in expensive apparel and had much to give sometimes were ostentatious in their display of how they gave. If you're a careful reader of the Sermon on the Mount, you will remember that Jesus warned in that great sermon about how we should give our gifts to God. He, he used the phrase, do not sound a trumpet. And what he meant is that these chests which were trumpet-shaped, that some who were rich would take a big double handful of gold coins and walk up to one of these chests and fling them in with great energy. And it would make a tremendous sound, and the people would all look and say, oh, look how much money he's given to the church. Jesus said, don't be a hypocrite and sound a trumpet with your gift like that. And Jesus was watching, and he's always watching. He knows how much you gave this morning. He knows how much you will have given by the end of the year. And he's interested in it because your money represents a part of you. It represents a part of your inheritance, a part of your talent and skill, and a part of your time. But how much of it is brought to Christ and how much of it is used for his glory a certain poor widow came and cast in two mites which make a farthing, two tiny little copper coins were all that she had. There would be no big stained glass window in the temple memorializing this widow. There would be no educational building with her name carved over it. No monuments, no hymn books, Nothing there that had her name. And yet, said Jesus, she has given more than they all. I've often thought that if I had the money to put in a big stained glass window, which I'm not much interested in, I would like to put in one and memorialize this widow, this widow with her two mites, one-sixteenth of a penny and how different the way Jesus counts the collection and the way we count the collection. See the total reversal? He had said one time before that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He had said before that whoever gave a cup of cold water in his name had given to him. I think that I love this widow so much for a very deep personal reason. My father died when I was 14 months old. 
And I grew up in the home of a widow with seven children in 1930, in the Depression, in the hardest years. A woman who would have to work all night long when we had moved off the farm in a meat canning factory, who did not have clothing that she thought was good enough to wear to the First Presbyterian Church, but who called her little children in and took of the $12 a week that she made and gave us each some money to put in the collection plate, and who taught us that the least we ought to give God was a tithe. A tithe of her $12 was a dollar and 20 cents. That would buy a sack of flour in 1934 and 1935, and she taught me to give. Tithing's never been a problem with us because of the example that she gave. And I don't say that with any intent at bragging at all. There's no bragging to it. It's God's anyway. But she had it in her heart. And you know that transmits easily when it's there in your heart. And St. Paul, when he talks later about giving to the church at Corinth that had caused him so much trouble, if you want a great lesson in how to give to God, read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. And in it you'll read some important lessons about how to give your money to Christ. Listen to how it reads in Philip's translation. Let everyone give as his heart tells him to give. How does your heart tell you to give? Neither grudgingly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. After all, God can give you everything that you need so that you may always have sufficient both for yourselves and for giving away to other people. That widow who cast in her two mites was a courageous soul. She was brave. I've often thought about her. I wondered about the day that she got married and whether or not they had children. And I thought about the fact that Jesus himself grew up in a home where, if legend is correct, Joseph died early and where his mother Mary was a widow. And he would have known something about the sacrifice that went into that. And yet she had the courage to believe that God would take care of her, even, in, even if she cast in all that she had, which she did, two mites. I've often thought that she must have given one mite for the temple service and one mite to the chest for the poor, the two mites that she cast in that day. Well, Paul says this, Scripture says, He hath scattered abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness abideth forever. He who gives the seed to the sower and turns that seed into bread to eat will give you the seed of generosity to sow and for harvest the satisfying bread of good deeds done. Think of the good that can be done with your money. If you sow the seed, harvest comes. And if harvest comes, you have more seed to sow next year. That's the way Paul says generosity toward God works. 
the more you are enriched by God, the more scope there will be for generous giving. And your gifts administered through us will mean that many will thank God. The ultimate purpose in your giving should be that God would be praised through it. This is what we need. This is surely what that widow had in mind that day when she came and cast in her gift of two tiny little coins and how Jesus blessed them. One of the poets has written an interesting account of this. Unnoted, he sat by the temple gate while the rich and the poor passed by, and he read their hearts as they dropped their, as they dropped their gifts neath the, neath the gaze of his searching eye. Each gift he weighed in a subtle scale as it dropped in the temple store, and the pain it cost, and the sacrifice, and the burden of love it bore. But the piercing eye of the watching Christ looked not at the proffered gold. Not what did he give was his searching test, but how much did he withhold? By that standard stern, the rich man's tithe was shamed by the widow's might, for she gave her all while he kept his wealth as he passed from the master's sight. By the gates of the treasury still he sits and watches the gifts we bring, and he measures the gold that we give to him by the gold to which we cling. How much to revive a starving world? How much for our pampered plates? How much to extend the king's frontiers? How much for our own estate? How much have you sent to the mission field to invest in the souls of men? How much to your broker for stocks and bonds to return to yourself again? Is it mammon or God who holds the key to the vault where your treasure lies? There's a curse or a blessing locked within that will follow beyond the skies. For the hour will come when the wealth of earth recedes from our slackened grasp. And the gold and the goods we have given away are all that our hands can clasp. O master of men, spur our lagging zeal till we answer the kingdom's call and lay on the altar a worthy gift, ourselves, our money, and our all. This indeed is a message for us. The standard is not how much we give, but how much we keep for ourselves. And getting ready for Christmas, how many of us have thought about Christ? Paul Turnier says that when we give something to someone, we enter into a many-sided relationship. And what we hope that that person will do, that we give gifts to, is to give us the gift of love in exchange. We are identified with our gifts, the gifts which we place in church, the gifts that we pray about and seek to use for the Lord's glory to support missionaries, to get out the gospel, to help those who have great need. What about you? Are you satisfied in your heart with what you're giving? One of the things that's happening to America is that we are decaying and dying inside. 
This has been recognized by people in great authority and great thinkers. And yet, what do you do to reverse this present trend? The communists say that we are materialistic and greedy. And there are those who would agree that they are right, although they have the same materialist goals. But one of the classic letters that expresses what's happening in our country and how we have allowed materialism to get hold of us is a letter that was written 10 years ago this January by Adlai to Adlai Stevenson from John Steinbeck. Once I was riding out to Vietnam and on the airplane beside me there was seated John Steinbeck's son. He's mentioned in this letter we talked about his father. Uh, Steinbeck was not to my knowledge a religious man but he was a very wise man. Listen to this letter and see what you think about it. Dear Adlai, I am back from Camelot and reading the newspapers and I'm not at all sure that it was wise. Two first impressions. First, a creeping, all-pervading nerve gas of immorality which has started in the nursery and does not stop before it reaches the highest offices, both corporate and governmental. Two, there is a nervous restlessness a hunger, a thirst, a yearning for something unknown, perhaps morality. And then there's the violence, the cruelty, and the hypocrisy symptomatic of a people which has too much. And last, the surly ill temper which only shows up in humans when they are frightened. Isn't that a classic line? the surly ill temper which only shows up in humans when they are frightened. Adlai, do you remember the two kinds of Christmases? There is the one kind in a house where there is little and a present represents not only love but sacrifice. The one single package is opened with a kind of slow wonder, almost reverence. Once I gave my youngest boy, who loves all living things, a dwarf peach-faced peach parrot for Christmas. He removed the paper. He retreated a little shyly, and he looked at the little bird for a long, long time. And finally he said in an awed whisper, Now who would have ever thought that I would have a peach-faced parrot? Then there's the other kind of Christmas which represents presents piled high, the gifts of guilty parents as bribes because they have nothing else to give their children. The wrappings are ripped off and the presents are thrown down and the child whines. Is that all? Well, Adlai, it seems to me that America is now like that second kind of Christmas having too many things, they spend their hours and money on the couch searching for a soul. A strange species we are. We can stand anything nature throws at us except plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, 
I would give it too much, and I would have it on its knees, miserable and greedy and sick. Those words are almost prophetic. Well, what do we do about it? One of the ways in which you can break the hold of materialism upon your life is by sacrificial giving. Giving as this widow gave, not grudgingly, but cheerfully, because there is a joy and a sacrifice which you make for Christ. Giving is in the very nature of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave. And this is the way that we should give to him. Because we love him, we give. And we give ourselves with that gift. And that leads us to the joy that comes with sacrifice. In thinking about gifts, I read a part of an essay by Emerson. This is what he said. It was written a hundred years ago. He says there are four kinds of gifts. First, there are those we do not know what to give, and so we end up giving them fruit or flowers. Next comes the gift of necessity, like shoes for a man who needs shoes. You don't give such a man a paint box, says Emerson. On the third level, there are gifts that we associate with the recipient, like the biography of an outstanding composer, which we would give to a, mu to a musician. And on the highest level, there are those gifts automatically associated with the giver because they are a part of his craftsmanship, his creativity, his effort, his work. The poet, for, for example, gives his own poem the shepherd his sheep, the painter his own painting. Emerson says, God is an example of this highest level of giving, for God gave himself to us at Christmas. He gave himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and our response to that gift which he gave to us is a joy, not a sacrifice in an ugly sense of the word, but the deep love that there comes in sacrificing for someone you love. And if you love Jesus, you sacrifice to give to him. And you delight in that. There is joy in it. Think about old Zacchaeus when he was converted. Why he gave away everything he had. He was so glad for what Christ had done for him. Think about the sinful woman who came and knelt at his feet and gave that expensive ointment. Those who know Jesus, really know him, have no trouble with giving. There's no difficulty in meeting their budgets of work for Christ. They're ready to go with all that they have and are, because in this is their greatest delight. Those who give the most have the most left. 
I believe that he who dries a tear will be spared the shedding of a thousand tears. I believe that every sacrifice we make will so enrich us in the future that our regret will be that we did not sacrifice more. Give in somewhere from beyond the clouds, from the sacred depths of human hearts, a melody divine will reach your ears and gladden you all your days. The secret of giving is the secret of Jesus Christ. For consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we as a people who have been blessed with such bounty and who have not been careful with our bounty need so often to reflect in thy presence what we do with what has been entrusted to our care when we think of the multitudes on this planet who suffer and who are in need and of that huge host who do not yet know Jesus Christ we do pray that thou wilt help us to search our hearts. Enable us not to be trapped by the God of this world, nor the deceitfulness of riches, nor the stranglehold of materialism. But help us through our love for Jesus to hold lightly the things of this earth and to lay up our treasure in heaven. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and guide be and abide with you all now and forevermore.